Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Pulp Today. I have with me here, Stephen Robinson. Say hello to the kids, Stephen, and tell them a little bit about yourself. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Stephen Robinson. I write for the political blog, Wonkette, and then when not dealing with the horrors of the Trump world and MAGA, I uh, write about uh, TV and film for the AV Club and fiction, which is always my kind of favorite uh, thing to do for um, a Seattle theater called uh, Cafe Nordo. Now, when you say you write fiction for a Seattle theater, you're writing plays for them? or you're Plays, writing- yes. So the most recent one we did um, was just kind of right under the radar before Omicron was an adaptation of uh, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass sort of with a modern spin. And um, it went very well. It sold very well. It was very happy, wonderful cast. It was great to finish it because it was we were kind of a week before opening in 2020 before everything shut down. And we were able to kind of come back and do wow. it. There's that feeling of kind of COVID did not take everything from us. So it was nice to do that. And um, somewhat specific to this podcast, um, I started working with Nordo. Um, we did um, an adaptation of Maltese Falcon, which nice. was a lot, of, a lot of fun. And um, Jane uh, Jones, a um, wonderful Seattle director there at the Book It Repertory Theater. I was working with Nordo. She had um, brought me on to do some dramaturg and strip work for for it. And um, she liked that I kind of knew the difference between hard-boiled and film noir, because we were talking, I think, about film noir and how it's like, well, the film, Maltese Falcon, which is what everyone thinks of, certainly inspired a lot of what would later become film noir, but there's a hero in it. The whole ending is about he's heroic. It yeah. is, and and essentially what people like is a hard boil. There's a pattern, a rhythm about it that um, we were sort of able to kind of preserve. Uh, Dashiell Hammett is, I mean, I love that book. And um, it's unfortunately, a great book. Unfortunately, we weren't able to keep the, the Flint Creek monologue for time. It's one of my, <laughs> it's just one of my favorites. It's, it's so, yeah. that's one of my favorite lines about vanishing like a, fingers into a fist yeah it's just yeah van- vanished like a fist when you open your hand yeah as i uh so, <laughs> the one that i one that i love the most from the flitcraft monologue just because it's so dashiell hammett is his first wife didn't his second wife didn't resemble his first wife but she looked more like her than unlike her if you know what I'm <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's such a great you know exactly what he's talking about but uh I actually just rewatched, not that we're going to talk about it, but we, I just rewatched Maltese Falcon yesterday because I'm actually, it's months from going anywhere, but I'm, uh, I'm bringing a, I'm doing a Maltese Falcon pastiche in one of my dynamite comics. And I was kind of, oh, wow. Kind of surprised that they said yes to it. Um, And I just sort of wanted to look at it and go, what are the plot, like, what, what can I mine from this storytelling wise? and you know it's funny now again not to get it's it's hard not to get off on that topic because I love it but I love the Maltese Falcon I think it's a great movie all of the women in it are miscast (laughs) oh yeah Uh, it it is it's one of those things sexy sexy book and he hired three matrons to play the three sexy sexy women in it it's like yeah it's one of those things of where and that was what sticks in people's heads 
similarly, one of the challenges with Breakfast at Tiffany's, if you were to ever do, the movie is very, very different from the book. Mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn is not someone you cast as someone pretending to be glamorous because she's essentially a Jesus original, like literally. Yeah. <laughs> her two most iconic role, it kills me that her two most iconic roles are in movies about dirt poor urchins who, oh, can we convince someone that this is a classy, elegant lady? Will it work? (laughs) I guess, maybe, yeah. It's Um, like, was Lynn Redgrave busy that week? It's just just the funniest thing in the world to me that her two, it's like if Cary Grant's two biggest movies were about, is this guy good looking or is, is, (laughs) is this homely dude succeed in any way? It's like, what? But yeah, I, 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 My Fair Lady, it's like, on what planet does that film take place on? Because it is not recognizably the Earth. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, w- watching Falcon again, I was just again struck by so much of the power of the ending comes from believing that they love each other. And Bogart is me- able to put it over against all the evidence previously in the movie. <laughs> I was talking to my wife last night and I came up with, I would have cast Olivia de Havilland. Ah. Because when Olivia ha- de Havilland does the schoolgirl innocent act, you go, oh, that poor kid, she's in so much trouble. And then when Bogart laughs at her, you'd go, oh my, did I just get conned? Whereas when Mary Astor lies in the Maltese Falcon, you're like, Yes, well, she's lady. She's, seriously, she's, 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 <laughs> am I? I'm I'm supposed to buy, and I, you know, and I love that he calls her out on it constantly and immediately. But it's like I think it's a better movie if the audience is at least a little bit fooled by Bridget O'Shaughnessy and doesn't spend the whole movie going. Yes, so. if if he is smarter than we are, it certainly is. Yeah, let him be smarter than we are. I also will always just be amazed that that movie literally changed the definition of a word because Hammett did the classic writer thing of using a very obscure word that people didn't oh, uh, You mean Gunzel? Yeah. There is no prior meaning of that film. Prior to that film, there is no meaning of that word that means torpedo, gunman, hitman. It yep, just means yeah. catamite. It just means young man being used by an older man for sex. And I remember explaining that during the opening of rehearsal when we gathered around and it was of like, oh, Right. And then it changed everything in the script of like, oh, this is this is really <laughs> he's really coming down in that relationship. It sort of changed kind of how he regards him as opposed to just, oh, Gunzo means gunman. And you would often see it. And yeah, people so many stories like, are just now, depending, on what, depending on what dictionary you find, because it's common usage it'll now be definition one. And then definition two is, you know, catamite, archaic. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the sense in which Hammett was using it was in the archaic Yiddish gonsal sense of it. Uh, But anyway, I'm just, I'm fascinated when you can literally change the meaning of a word uh, (laughs) just by using it in your story and everyone thinking they're getting the contextual well it's got the word gun in it obviously it means gunman it's like no it very much does not but we're here to talk about patricia highsmith yes i love her uh before we started recording we're talking about hitchcock a little bit she's mostly you know remembered by people as as the author of 
some things that got turned into movies. I'm trying to remember, I don't think I've read Strangers on a Train. Uh, I think I read Talented Mr. Ripley in college. Mm -hmm. And that may be the last High Smith I've read. I also I, I looked into her private life. She was a whole mess, that woman. Oh, yes. <laughs> just um, I'm a big fan of hers. I've read all of her work. Uh, uh, Strangers on a Train, I like most people, I came in through the film. I love uh, the movie. Um, I think um, the uh, reading the book and I was surprised, oh, this was one, it was a book and then she had written it and it's very different. Um, we can get into how uh, later, but it's interesting. Um, I think also Hitchcock might've conned her where I think he used a different name to get the rights. Same as so, the uh, Yeah. Um, but I mean, she, it was her first book. So as you know, as any of us would go, selling your first book for a, <laughs> for a movie yeah. is the worst there thing. Were, and, you know, and even though, you know, I'm, I'm obviously on Block's side when it comes to Hitchcock cheating him a little bit there, it's undeniable that Block got a lot of work and a lot of mileage out of from the author of Psycho. You know, like it, it, as much as, yes, he should have been given a lot more money, he he did get you know he did get the hot the hotness off of it and ended up writing a bunch of movies and you know doing a bunch of books with, with as the author of psycho on it um but uh yeah and that whole thing the one i have no respect for is joe stefano who would really like you to forget that robert block existed uh <laughs> who wrote the screenplay to psycho but uh all that said uh you have a couple of pages you would like to read uh, sure, let me. If you want to call them up, I'll call those and up. Does this like a clip on a talk show? Does this require any setup? Um, I would say, uh, this is sort of famously leading to sort of a famous scene of like in the movies, the crisscross scene of him recommending that um, he can kill your, I can kill your wife. Right. For um, and we can do strangers, literally strangers. Um, and I think at this point, I'll just read briefly the part where uh, it's been raised. Um, and Guy, who's played by um, Farley Granger, who was in Rope, one of another one of my favorite uh, Hitchcock films, um, at first is just appalled by this. He's met this strange guy in a train and it, it reveals his problems with his ex-wife the other person says hey kill your ex i'll kill your wife you kill my father everything goes well um i'll start here guy looked at him in disgust bruno seemed to be growing indefinite at the edges as if by some process of delinquence he seemed only a voice and a spirit now the spirit of evil all he despised guy thought bruno represented all the things he would not want to be, Bruno was or would become. Want me to dope out a perfect murder of your wife for you? You might want to use it sometimes. Bruno squirmed of self-consciousness under Guy's scrutiny. Guy stood up. I want to take a walk. Bruno slammed his palms together. Hey, cheese, what an idea. We murder for each other, see? I kill your wife and you kill my father. We meet on the train, see? Nobody knows we know each other. Perfect alibis, catch? The wall before his eyes pulsed rhythmically as if it were about to spring apart. Murder? 
The words sickened him, terrified him. He wanted to break away from Bruno, get out of the room, but a nightmarish heaviness held him. He tried to steady himself by straightening out the wall, by understanding what Bruno was saying, because he could feel there was logic in it somewhere, like a problem or a puzzle to be solved. Bruno's tobacco-stained hands jumped and trembled on his knees. Airtight alibis, he shrieked. It's the idea of my life. Don't you get it? I could do it sometime when you're out of town, and you could do it when I was out of town. Guy understood. No one could ever possibly find out. It would give me a great pleasure to stop a career like Miriam's and to further a career like yours, Bruno giggled. Don't you agree she ought to be stopped before she ruins a lot of other people? Sit down, Guy. She hasn't ruined me. Guy wanted to remind him, but Bruno gave him no time. I mean, just supposing the setup was that. Could you do it? You could tell me all about where she lived, you know, and I could do the same for you, as good as if you lived there. We could leave fingerprints all over the place and only trick drive the dick's batty, he snickered. Months apart, of course, and strictly no communication. Christ, is a cinch. He stood up and nearly toppled, getting his string. Then he was saying right in Guy's face with suffocating confidence, you could do it, huh, Guy? Wouldn't be any hitches, I swear. I'd fix everything, I swear, Guy. Guy thrust him away, harder than he had intended. Bruno rose resiliently from the window seat. Guy glanced about for the air, but the walls presented an unbroken surface. Wow. That is great stuff. Yeah. Um, so much characterization there, so much building, so much of getting in the guy's head of where Guy is going. And I just could ask you of like, this setup, as you were saying how the word guns will change, I feel like this concept I've seen in the 70 years since of switching murders, I think <laughs> to date myself, I was probably, uh, as we mentioned at DM, I was probably first exposed to it in the film, uh, Fro Mama from the Train, which mm -hmm. is the, uh, the comedy with uh, Danny DeVito and uh, Billy Crystal. Um, I think Law and Order has done a riff on it. It's um, it's something I, I get. It's such a, a compelling concept, right? The the perfect murder, which sure. goes into a very dark part of ourselves. Yeah. No. And and look, and who doesn't. Who doesn't stand in, maybe this is just me, who doesn't stand in a bank and look at where the security cameras are and who the guard is and could I jump over the, you know, just idle speculation, you know, how would a thing be possible? I mean, you know, it's so many murders, you just have to think, you know, don't murder anybody if you're the most logical suspect in the world. You know, like if you're suspect number one, there was a, you know, my dad wrote, uh, among other things, a series of private eye novels. And uh, he passed away about uh, 20 some years ago, but they moved out here before he passed away. And uh, I used to take him to the silent movie theater on Fairfax. Silent movie theater is run by uh, an old gentleman who it was sort of known was having an affair with his much younger male projectionist. He was murdered in what was uh, what looked like a holdup gone wrong. And my father, who was a month or two away from his own uh, death from heart disease, just like casually said to me, oh, it's the projectionist. The projectionist hired the guy like they that's got like, come on, man, that's the most obvious. The projectionist wants the theater. He's sick of sleeping with the old man. Yeah. 
on the idea that someday the old man's going to die and leave it to him. Maybe he saw a will that doesn't leave it to him is in the works. Maybe he feel, but my dad was like the projectionist hired an assassin to pretend to be a, a stick up man. And that's what happened. And that turned out to be absolutely true. My father cracked the case sitting on his couch, reading a newspaper. Uh, don't commit crimes that can be cracked by a guy sitting on a couch, reading a newspaper report about the crime. Oh, exactly. Like you probably should not do that. I think, yes, the, the, um, the stranger their train trope, I think was also used um, in one of my favorite Avengers episodes. I think it was the first Diana Rigg ever recorded where it's um, a marriage bureau where, so obviously people don't know each other. So it's kind right. of, you kill this person, you kill. So it's the idea of killing strangers. I think um, as Chris, Chris Rock would later say, criminal minds changed all that because you would watch, or CSI, you watch stuff like that. It's like, oh, well, they're real thorough. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to get caught. Like I should probably, right. but back in the day before people understood DNA, like, oh, I could do, you could get away with this and maybe you could get, it's a very satanic concept. And I think the heart of it being the choice, you choose to do a right thing or a wrong thing. Right. Um, you, uh, and your podcast about uh, Psycho, you'd mentioned that, um, the Gus Van Sant version, which I remember seeing in a theater and being very disappointed. <laughs> I was like, how bad could this be? I love this movie. It could be cool and fun, right? It's and no, no, no. extremely bad. It's extremely <laughs> bad. <laughs> um, and, you know, they make this choice in a scene of like, oh, even in casting Vince Vaughn, you're already kind of going in the wrong direction, but of where he's pleasuring himself while watching. Uh, and it's like, well, if he could do that, then he wouldn't be crazy. Right. Like, so you don't or understand. At the very least, he wouldn't uh, need to commit the murder. The whole, you know, I always say that. What's the, know the point of the story you're telling as an artist. You know, it makes me want, like, walk up to Gus Van Zandt and say, what is this movie about? Yeah. Not the plot. <laughs> Yeah, what's it about? What's it, yeah. The plot is, uh, it's about a guy who dresses up as his mother and kills people. That's the plot. Why are you telling the story? What is the point of the story? What is what does the story say about the human condition? The only thing that story says about the human condition is that sexual frustration is dangerous. <laughs> that, that's the sexual repression makes people violent and crazy is pretty much all there is to glean from that story, really. Um, I had forgotten watching side watch Psycho again recently, too, because it comes up in one of my Elvira comics coming soon. And uh, I had forgot, like, the what makes Hitchcock great is when we go to Sam Loomis's hardware store, there's a woman asking about pesticide and saying, I want to just exterminate them all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a throwaway character. She has nothing to do with the plot. She's asking about insecticide, but it's just a little moment of, like, someone sounding like a genocidal crazy person in the middle of a murder mystery and she's talking about her problem with roaches or ants or whatever it is, I don't remember. But uh, that, kind of, uh, that kind of thing to make a movie seem all of a piece, you know? Um, and, and Hitchcock was great with casting. And sometimes you, you hear about, like, I feel like I read somewhere once that he wanted Vera Miles to play the Janet Lee part and it didn't work out. And I'm like, but that doesn't work at all. No. Because you, for me, Vera Miles is disappointing after Janet Lee. 
Like you can't help but be like, oh, I kind of wish it was still Janet Lee starring oh, yeah. in the movie. Um, and the and the you know, as I said in my podcast, the Julianne Moore Anne Hache thing flips that completely. Um, and oh my god, the acting in the original is so great. But the talking about let's talk about the movie version of uh, yeah. So the, yeah, the reason I brought that up was was I am I too forgiving of Hitchcock for the change he made to the book because. Um, in the book, spoiler alerts for everyone for a 70 year old piece of work, um, Hitchcock, um, it's a thriller, but it has a, I want to say, I don't even say happy ending in the sense of Guy does not commit the murder. So Guy actually, his big choice, and he's been pressured after Bruno has killed uh, Guy's ex, he's putting pressure on him to do his side of the bargain guy it looks as if in a classic similar there's a scene in every Hitchcock film from like the right. glass and suspicion and every of like is what's going to happen here and it looks like he's going to kill the old guy but he's not he goes there to warn him and Bruno has expected that but from there it shifts to can guy stop from being framed by this bad guy can guy is our hero he's made the right choice we should root for him and it's brilliantly done. It's suspenseful, has the classic where he needs to stop Bruno, but he has to win a tennis match. Like right. he has to, you know, so you're suddenly caring about this tennis match on screen. It's like, can he, go to, he has to win, he has to win. Um, whereas in the book, Highsmith has him commit the murder, he breaks. It's like, okay, well, he's gonna go, this is the choice, he makes the bad choice. And of course, from there, it's a tragedy. Everything from there is downhill. He's eventually, it ends with the authorities coming. Um, it's very tragic. Hitchcock flips the script on that and makes, and it made me even think, um, I don't know if you're opinion on this, I feel like he doesn't tend to make a lot of films where the, he doesn't tend to make a lot of tragedies. I think Vertigo is probably the closest yeah. to that, but I think generally, there's a well, sense I would, of redemption. I would put it as he's not a nihilist. Yes. Hitchcock yes. is not a nihilist. He knows how sick people are because he himself was sick. Mm. Uh, and he made movies about it <laughs> over and over again. Um, it's a fascinating thing to me. Um, the, like Hitchcock and Polanski, for all the, 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 the bad things they did to women, people who do bad things to women are the villains in their films. There is a self-awareness there. The degree to which all of Polanski's films are about rape and that's his crime is wild. You know, and, and the, considering the crime Polanski committed, Rosemary's Baby is about how someone who a woman should trust to take care of her leaves her in a situation where she's going to be raped. Oh, yes. That's what he made a movie about. Um, and Hitchcock makes a lot of movies about creepy weirdos who like to stare at people and who are sexually frustrated and all that kind of thing. But he does understand the audience's need for heroes and villains and resolution. And I think even at his most perverse, he's never that kind of everything sucks and everyone's bad nihilist. And again, as we're, I think we're talking about this before we started recording, but I always associate that kind of nihilism. It's the same exact thing as, uh, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans are the same. It lets mm -hmm. you off the hook. 
I can do anything because nothing matters because nobody's good, but so we shouldn't expect good from anyone. Yes. That's nonsense. And it's not the way the world is. And we've all seen goodness and we've all seen, you know, per we've all seen good things, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Yeah. So the film Don't Look Up had that where uh, I think their creators were like, oh yeah, well, we, we're not going to tell you if Meryl Streep's president is a Democrat or Republican because essentially a both sides thing. And it's like, that's very facile because there's ways to satirize, you could say democratic fecklessness on climate change or and, and Republican nihilism on climate change. But those are very two different characters. I really to have the same character and say, there's no way to tell is essentially, well, you don't exist in the world. So the story doesn't, you might as well be setting this in the fifties where the president is president, white guy, good, you know, like, yeah generic president you know yeah. so, so that's yeah, not a, a couple of guys who hate hillary clinton hire a white woman of a certain age with blonde yes. hair to play the president and then insist that no 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 it's supposed to be trump it's like really yeah i bet alec baldwin would have taken your fucking phone call dudes if you, <laughs> you wanted to remind, remind people of donald trump well trump well, is tr trump is, def is essentially toxic masculinity and everything that's so too you can't do Trump without. Well, and that is man and white man. this happens to us a lot on Twitter where you say something. I'm like, fucking exactly right. The to say that it's Trump and then say, well, but if that's Trump. So this this woman has raped a lot of ladies. She used to run a beauty contest so that she could walk through the dress like you can't take the misogyny out of Trump and say I'm satirizing Trump because no. that's part of Trump is the misogyny. So if you create a misogynistic caricature of the first woman president and say, oh, no, no, but we're making fun of Donald Trump, that is a fucking fig leaf if ever I have yeah. seen And one her one. will for ignorance is Palin and Palin did not succeed because there's a limit to what Americans will accept. I think the nihilism thing you mentioned is, is great for how I look at this because I would wanna quickly compare this to, to you read Talented Mr. Ripley and that's a book, she did a whole series where she, a great job again, you need to identify with a psychopath. Yeah. And the movie, which again, one of the, I read first with Matt Damon, the creators distinctly make it a tragedy where if you've seen the movie, Damon, there's a character they essentially create who um, Damon falls in love with, Damon's Ripley. And Ripley has to, again, spoilers for a 25 year old movie, has to kill him to continue the lie he's living. So it's a tragedy. He doesn't get to walk off in the sunset as his happy psychopath, which is what right. Highsmith wrote. Right. And one could argue that that ending, that's obviously a certain degree much more nihilistic, that a psychopath could get away with everything and walk away. Right. Um, it's interesting. I do think there is a sense of audiences sometimes like that, depending upon, you know, if it's a psychopath in a world where everyone else is somehow darker or twisted or something, but it has to be a specific, a specific circumstance. So that makes sense where people are willing to accept the psychopath getting away with everything. I mean, maybe the Godfather, but ultimately oh, the Hannibal, Godfather. Hannibal Lecter. Oh yes. That's best. Yeah. You know, that's the lovable psychopath of all time. Um, and, uh, and again, and the way the way the that quote unquote franchise has been handled kind of sickens me because it's like, 
you can do that in one story, but to keep making him the adorable psychopath on and on again, and I don't care. Same thing with Norman Bates. I don't want to see a movie about his childhood. Don't fucking, don't bore me with a movie about his childhood. Uh, we've all had tough childhoods. Not all of us turn into psycho killers. It's a, it's a, you know, I think it, I think it's, like I said, it's, it's too easy uh, to write a, a world in which everyone's terrible and nothing matters and there is no love and there is no, you know, and also in terms of, you know, speaking of casting, I remember when I saw a talented Mr. Ripley, I was like, so you've got a movie about the world's smoothest manipulative psychopath and the gullible kid that he takes advantage of, falls in love with and later murders. And you, and you cast Jude Law as the gullible kid and Matt Damon as the master manipulator of people. Like, I don't, mm. I don't think that's, I think that, I think it's you might have wanted to switch those two guys. Uh, and I, there's a certain something to be said for casting against type. Um, but I never, I don't know that I believe Matt Damon can yeah. tie his own shoes in the morning. I, I, just, I, I don't, you know, I, I oh, yeah, like the idea that Ripley's wealth would be what Jude Law in the mid '90s would have, which is it's very handsome, he's very charming, um, and Damon, who's certainly no slouch. There's still the physical resemblance. He's no slouch, yeah. but he has the confidence from his wealth and his security that would make him appealing. So right. having it be both Jude Law with all the wealth and the connections and and confidence is everything. And then Matt Damon seems to have less of that. Like, why would Jude Law bring him into his yeah, world? Well, that's the other, you know, that's another, that's a casting 101 thing that I see all the time that always bugs me is the, why does this person care about that person? Why is this, aside from the fact that we need it to happen for the movie to work, I need to be as charmed by this person as the hero, as the, as their mark is. And I'm, the con has to work on me. And it, exactly. in that case, it, it absolutely, it absolutely didn't work on me. Well, I think as a writer, isn't it somewhat humbling and you've done, if you've done plays or whatever to realize how key casting is, you want to oh, believe, yeah. no, my script is so brilliant. This love affair will convey whoever you cast. And I, we think everyone's been there. It's, it's, like, no, 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 there's no, like all of it is this audience connection and whether or not you believe, like, otherwise it's like, oh, I believe that she would. Yeah, no, the script, this the script oh this the script can be the greatest script in the world you miscast it you're making a terrible movie and there's nothing nothing in directing <laughs> editing um i produced a movie a bunch of years ago called true loved and had a pretty good script and uh we cast an actress named najara townsend to play the lead and i remember saying to her we actually can't fuck it up because they're going everyone's going to love you <laughs> like you are such a charming beautiful kid she's 15 years old at the time and it was about a 15 year old so that was appropriate but uh as like they're going to be on your side and we so would have to go out of our way to make the audience not interested in what happens to you and what you're doing it's why television works television is you know i want these people in my living room every week and that's, you know, that's, it's going back to Ray Bradbury. It's, you know, the family on the, that lives in the wall, uh, that lives on your wall screen that you pretend that 
they're actually your family and they feel like they're your family. I think they call that a parasocial relationship now. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, you screw up the casting like that and it's, there's no, there's really no coming back from it. And I have a, I, there's sometimes the text says one thing and the casting says something else. And to me, that's the most, you got to change the line. I did the, I talked about the line in what I consider the greatest screenplay book to screenplay adaptation moment in the history of film is Humphrey Bogart saying, uh, Carmen Sternwood saying to Phil Marlowe, you're not very tall, are you? When in the book, it's you're very tall, <laughs> aren't you? And it's like, yeah, you cast Humphrey Bogart. You can't yeah. have someone say to him, you're very tall. He is not, no matter how many boxes you put him yeah. on. And in, the, and in the Maltese Falcon, Effie says, you're going to want to see her. She's a knockout. And Mary Astor walks in and you go, she's okay. pretty. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. She's the kind of woman that another woman would call a knockout. Like, no, I, no, it, I mean, not there. It, yeah, and, and you know, with all respect, you have to believe Miles is, as he says, he's a, he's a jerk, but he's not so stupid. It has to be enough. That he's like, oh yeah, I'll walk in this dark alley with you. Yeah, you're so beautiful. You're so yeah. It um, just it it does. There are a million actresses that, go, and again, Mary Astor is very charming and she's super talented and she's pretty as all get out, but she does not fit. Yeah. The, the movie works in spite of that casting rather than whereas Sidney Greenstreet in his first movie ever, that's as perfect casting as there has ever been. In the you, line. You'll never do better. I mean, that's always a challenge of perfect casting. You just need to either find another way into the character or something, but don't. Um, speaking of Jimmy Stewart, I think uh, the, what I've read is that Hitchcock had offered Cary Grant both Vertigo and rope and for um perhaps there's debated reasons of what, why um grant turned him down on those two um rope definitely suffers from i think it need carrie grant is someone you would get the idea that, that those two young men had been idolizing and worshiping and finding and and his sort of glibness about right. killing like he would would tell his students all this stuff about being superior and killing people half meaning it is very Cary Grant. And so that is per and less so Stuart. Whereas I think you need Stuart in Vertigo that only works if you go in like really liking this guy. And yeah. so he's doing things that, okay, wait a minute, you're kind of creeping on your friend's wife. That's not cool. Yeah. And did you get her undressed? Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah it's it's his vulnerability and grant had vulnerability too but of a completely different kind and again yeah. you know like and you have to deal with the fact that carrie grant didn't think he was handsome mm -hmm. and had to be like talked into shit constantly when it when it dealt with how good looking he was he didn't like you know, he he didn't realize he was the most charming man in the world, and they constantly had to convince him. No, no, no. The no, audience, will, the audience will actually believe this. Don't worry about it. Um, so there's, you know, that's that's another element of it. But yeah, I always casting is everything, and I always, uh, in particular, when someone is presented in a movie as someone super important, and then they're played by you know, the dollar store version of some movie star. It always, like, I always hate when they cast someone completely anonymous to play the president of the United States in a movie. 
Mm -hmm. because no, everyone in the world, when someone is president, everyone in the world instantly recognizes a picture of them. Mm -hmm. When a guy walks into the Oval Office in your movie and I've never seen his face before and everyone goes, Mr. President, uh, the ambassador is here. You go, I no, I would recognize the president. Like your mind goes, no, I, that guy can't be the president. I don't know who that guy is. Um, and when you, I always use this example. There was an episode of 24 and I must've been looking away during the opening credits because I didn't see the guest stars. And uh, the premise of the moment is that Kiefer Sutherland is going to see the greatest secret agent who ever lived, the man who taught him everything he knows, the world's master spy. And I think I was watching it with a girlfriend at the time. I think it's long enough ago that it wasn't my wife. And I said, when that chair turns around, I need a James Bond or better. Like it's, they got to have somebody that lives up to this height. And it wasn't a James Bond, but it was Peter Weller. And I went, fair. Yeah. That's fair. I buy Peter Weller. Yes. You gave, me, you gave me a RoboCop. You gave me Buckaroo Banzai. Like, I believe that he's the greatest, you know, like, but you can't say this guy is the most hype dude in the world. And it's like, uh, I, I recognize that guy from his uh, under five on Law and Order. Like, I like, you know, it needs to be the power and weight of the part. I always say that certain characters need to be they would be the star of their own movie. And that's always going to be true of the president of the United States for one thing. So when you have a character who would be the star of their own movie, you need a movie star to play that part. Yeah. And, and it's just to get someone in, pay them a lot for their cameo yeah. and their time. And it can, and it works. It's either Robert Redford. There's usually like, here's your list of yeah. presidents of a generation, especially if it works, if they've been in well, movies and- before. So he comes in with that. And the Robert Redford thing, I also love, love, love casting that transmits to a certain audience, and I, it's me, I'm that audience, that we know what we're doing and we know what genre we're working in. Mm-hmm. Putting Robert Redford in Winter Soldier is just such a funny, like, it's a 1970s political thriller. Here's yeah. Robert Redford. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, 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 be, love, I love that casting. Be, literally, it had to be him or Warren Beatty. <laughs> to make that to make that part work yeah. um in- i actually and i supported his casting and um indecent proposal people were like no it doesn't work it needs to be like gross danny devito at his grossest or something and it's like but then it's a different mo- it's a yeah, and it's movie. not about jealousy then it's just about ew gross then, <laughs> then it's that episode of the simpsons <laughs> with, with, where it's john lovitz exactly yeah uh, is the guy Right, it was Lovitz playing. John Lovitz yeah. playing, yeah, playing yeah. off of that. But no, yeah, the one that was a really beautiful acknowledgement of what had gone before, and also great actor that you know wasn't working as much as he should. Robert Mar- Morse being the boss in Mad Men. Oh yeah, was such a yes. This is this is how to succeed in business without really trying as presented by Harold Printer. Like, but we, <laughs> we got the we got the the leading man from how to succeed in business without really trying. Um and he brings that energy that 19 like you look at him and you remember him from being in the corporate world, you know, the sexist corporate world of the 1950s and all that. But it's such a hat tip to yeah, we know what we know what this is and we know what we're we know what we're doing and we're not pretending we're the first person, people to make a movie about this or to make a television. Uh, 
Yeah, um, I think of Highsmith's books, uh, Better Cat, I mean, there was one of the later ones they did with um, John Malkovich. Yeah, Malkovich played, played the part. Middle-aged uh, Ripley, uh, Ripley's Game, which I enjoyed because Malkovich is just- He's definitely impressive. more believer, uh, believable as a master manipulator of people, as a genius. You know, it's, uh, it, he definitely brings that, that power to the performance. But, uh, but yeah, I was, I was fascinated to read about Highsmith's personal life. I had completely forgotten that she writes Carol, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of her literary not coming out, but then eventually it does, you know, it does come out. And I had, it's funny that all of her, that her, uh, her mystery stories mostly have unhappy endings or at least happy endings but for the psychopath mm. um but famously carol is like the first romance homosexual romance that doesn't end with people committing suicide or dying or oh, yeah. thrown in an asylum or uh it's funny that that's what she wanted a happy outcome in yeah i think it's a it's a it's a pleasant surprise given you know i don't and i don't necessarily i wouldn't label her a nihilist it's hard i think she it's not just, I think she just presents these choices and people make bad choices, which is sort of different from kind of, um, and I, I, I can sometimes bash Woody Allen on this, but as someone who kind of grew up this, it's like, um, here's how clever it is to say that people are bad, which right. is not in itself. It's not coming from character. It's just, yeah. The, and this person, I would never be shot by this choice. Um, I mean, he had twice made movies where um a guy a, a well-off person has his mistress killed and gets away with it and mm -hmm. we're like okay well this might be a thing with you now at this point where it just seems like you just want to hurt women who no longer well and that you know I used, to, I used to love crimes and misdemeanors when i thought that the woody allen character was woody allen in that movie it's when i realized that no the martin lando character is woody yes. allen that I found the movie too hard to watch now because- Oh, exactly. It's, you know, it's like, um, he knows all about getting away with it and going on to continue to be a millionaire and be beloved yeah, by- life is, life is wonderful and it doesn't, it's like, a, well, what is, what are you telling me? So I, I think as we said of like some of the, these thrillers and with Hitchcock, I've been sort of inspired by the sense of, I feel like their ability to use character, to have the characters make choices that really matter i mean again as a company we consider people might consider manhattan for instance a more sophisticated movie than some of hitchcock because hitchcock was considered very um mainstream entertainment but it's like well no one makes a choice that doesn't shock me or is means anything really for care it's just these are just plot choices whereas you know oh my god jimmy what are you doing why are you changing this woman and right. making her dress like a dead woman you know, why, okay, oh, Janet Lee, why are you stealing, yeah. you know? Well, I mean, I, you know, I will argue till the end of time about the value of genre in being truly, uh, what's the word, revealing of human character. Absolutely. I think the idea that there's a wrong, that uh, I think if you think a movie about a guy in tights and a cape can't say something profound about the human condition by its very nature you have revealed your weaknesses as a writer not the weaknesses of the genre 
anything in 96 i was hired to write and direct a low budget movie called kick of death my uh there were not a lot aside from the fact that it had to be an action slash martial arts movie i was not given a lot of parameters one of the parameters was that the main character had to be a kickboxer and his girlfriend had to be a stripper and i had a moment of like and then the writer in me the real writer went they're human beings there are no there aren't valid stories to tell about kickboxers who are going out with strippers really that's a shitty fucking way of looking at the world and it's also completely inaccurate and uh you know there are things you can get from the pulpiest of material that the most sensitively written you know adult quote unquote novel will not deliver for you because it is you know it's it there's a reason we love metaphors there's a reason we've been doing stories about gods and monsters since the Oh yeah, and it goes um, goes back to Shakespeare, right? Like something in in the theater community, both in, in Portland, Seattle, there'll often be a sort of this "woe is me" sense of people don't want to see my, you know, black kid got shot play. Why do black audiences not come to the black kid got shot play? That's relentlessly depressing. Instead, went to see Black Panther or Spider Man Far From Home or these films, and it's like, well, okay, but. I mean, what is Romeo and Juliet? What is Hamlet? Like Hamlet is one of the greatest pieces, but it's essentially, it hits certain notes that you are more likely to see in a modern, in a well done superhero movie. Like it's grand and epic and and there's, you know, sword fights in, in Romeo and, and Juliet. Ghost. Exactly, there's ghosts and, you know, there's comic yeah. relief. And to me, it's like, we need to be doing more of Shakespeare and more of these things where these is grand, grand sense, grand characters, and genre definitely does that as well. You have potential for, like, you know, to me, it's like, I want to write Sydney Green Street characters. Like, those are, you know, mm-hmm. like, and uh, Gutman is just yeah. wonderful. That's so much it's fun. It's so hard and- to imagine, of all of the casting in the history of mankind, it is so hard to imagine another actor saying those lines. Yeah. The way Hammett writes that character is so weird and interesting. You know, the the repetition of phrases, the like has to that, sir, has to that. It's so fascinating and odd. And he gets it exactly right. <laughs> like, you know, oh, yeah. it's a hard, I, like I can imagine even Orson Welles would have been like, I don't know how to say anything. No, no. Uh, uh, my, friend, my friend Aaron played him and did a great job. And I think he, I think sometimes people will try to run away from a definitive performance. And I think, the tougher thing is to be like, yeah, this guy got it right. I'm not gonna eight, I'm not gonna do an SNL parody of it, but right. I need to go in and be aware. I'm not gonna try to deliberately make choices yeah. differently because they might be the bad choice to be right. made. Well, that's the. I. It's funny. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Producers, the original. And I saw Jason Alexander do the musical here in LA, and then I saw the movie version of the musical. And one of the things I was super curious about is talk about a definitive performance and dialogue written to be delivered by a particular actor in a particular style. Um, And Jason Alexander, not always successfully, but he definitely did 
I am going to find a different way to make every single one of these lines funny than the way Zero Mostel did it. Hmm. I'm going to come at every, I'm going to find a different direction. I'm going to go in that direction and I'm going to read every line in that direction. And it, oh yeah, in the, in the terms of a hermetically sealed universe of that movie, of that show, it was great. It was fine. I've seen the original so often, I'm distracted by everything that's different. And then I saw the movie and I'm like, oh, so, uh, what's his name? Uh, Nathan Lane, totally comfortable just doing a zero Mostel impression for three hours. <laughs> like not a, not a problem. I did, I did funny thing happened. I did fiddler on the roof. I can do this exactly the same. I'm just going to okay. phone in that zero Mostel performance. It's going to be great. I'm going to read the lines exactly the way he read them and no one will care. And, <laughs> and those are two very different approaches, but I, I, you know, I can't necessarily just handed Nathan Lane's part. I don't, I don't know that I would have sat there and go, I presume to be smarter than Zero Mostel and how I'm going to play these lines. <laughs> you know, like that's, whoa, that's a and hard Alexander had the benefit of, I mean, yeah, George Costanza is someone who gets in over his head and is a right. con artist, um, but a failed con artist. So. Right. Certainly the audience will be like, oh yeah, I get the Georgeness yeah, of this. It, it wasn't. And he wasn't as I like, doing that either, right? Yeah. I mean, it was also, I think I saw, I want to say it was Martin Short as uh, in the Gene Wilder part. And just like Matthew Broderick, you go, these guys are 30 years too old <laughs> to play these parts. That's a young, the whole point is that he is a young, young man and naive and all that. When you bring out some 50 year old dude, I don't care how you know too sold his hair is. He's if that if that's an old guy, this is a very sad show. <laughs> you know? Like, are Only you a little sad? But like, if you take away the element of his youth, yeah, you have to do it as a, a midlife crisis. Yeah, then it's a completely different. It's like you know, I know we've talked about casting a lot. It's like Harrison Ford in Sabrina. It's like, no, the original story is not about how old Linus is. It's that he's not William Holden. Yeah. Humphrey Bogart was magnetic and sexy as hell, but he was a homely man. Mm -hmm. And it's not about a guy who's been the most handsome man in the world his entire life. And now he's 62 and he's in love with a 25 year old. Like that's, that isn't the problem in that. That's story. a different story and yeah. very depressing. The problem one. is that his younger brother is gorgeous and charming and he is neither of those things. And it's like, that ain't Harrison Ford, guys. <laughs> like, that is not, you know, was, I, Giamatti wasn't a thing yet uh, to play that part. But that's yeah. a Paul Giamatti part, not a Harrison Ford part. Exactly, because uh, um, at that point, wasn't Greg Kinnear starting to, like, always the person someone want, is the wrong guy who's yeah. always, like, Oh, well, he's not going to get the girl. But yeah, that was- You're, the, you're I, in a film with Tom Hanks. <laughs> when they, they introduced, when they announced that casting uh, of Harrison Ford, I said, who's playing Harrison Ford's better looking younger brother? I really like, who have you got lined? Dennis Quaid? Like, I don't know. Who have you got lined up to, like, even that wouldn't work. But I'm like, who? who well, Greg, yeah, Greg Kinnear was just the- empty suit version of that character yeah. about the charm and yeah like and i'm not a casting whiz but i would just be like okay well if i were making indiana jones or star wars right now right who's the guy who would i who would i 
cast as that guy and that guy would make sense as a yeah younger yeah. and then i can put some glasses whatever harrison ford did try to make himself look serious and mature he did a lot of that in his 50s but he was like still like i mean you're really yeah still harrison ford you're yeah you know. yeah no it's a it is an interesting thing with his career i always wonder if if mosquito coast had made a lot of money in one best picture and gotten him an oscar there's a whole different career for Harrison Ford. Because I feel like that not being acknowledged as a great movie was mm -hmm. where he went, you know what? I, I'll just go back to punching people in movies and that'll, that'll, that'll be it. Like, I'm, I'm just going to hit dudes now because nobody wants to. Yeah, it worked for him. I'll play the president, action hero president. And yeah. Everything. Yeah. yeah, but uh, what was I going to say? The, it's interesting that no one has yet done a Mr. Ripley. Like that's the most obvious streaming se series in the world. Absolutely, and I'm surprised yeah. that it hasn't, uh, it's got everything people love, a psychopathic main character. Uh, I have to say that's one of those, you know, the, the David Fincher of it all. I'm just always like, how do you want to spend your entire life telling that story? <laughs> I'm depressed just watching your television shows and your movies. How is that all you want to do ever, 24 hours a day, day in, day out? I don't. Yes, it's a tough, I mean, I think there's a sense of often who is the bat, who is the worst person. I think even Highsmith in later films, you could argue goes in a I I wouldn't call it Norish way, but in a sense of like with um, Kiss Me Deadly, the idea is that we like Mike Hammer is a complete jerk, lunatic, and Kiss Me Deadly, but everyone else in that world is worse. Right. Like you're evil. He's almost at least recognizably human. Like yes. his flaws are human. So you could put Ripley in that kind of world. But I mean, even Hammer had like the his assistant who he liked there's like some there's yeah. no humanity in yeah in ripley so that makes it very hard to get a clink to him um and i mean i think it works i mean her talented mr ripley i think does the trick of enjoying watching this guy get away with essentially murder like and, and right. killing people who did not deserve to be killed not that people deserve to be killed obviously but in the sense of right in the sense of those kind of stories there are definitely you know justified and unjustified deaths but yeah no it's a it's a it's a fascinating worldview and uh you know there's definitely some misanthropy uh in highsmith's work it seems like and uh it's a different kind of misanthropy in Hitchcock's work. I think there's a little more self, I mean, I think there's a little self-hatred in, in both of them. Um, but again, you come down to uh, Strangers on a Train, it's like, there's a reason it's Farley Granger and not Cary Grant. Yeah. It can't be a strong, you'd never believe Cary Grant was gonna kill his wife. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's different. He did movies like that, but it's not in that, you put him next to, um, I'm spacing on the actor's first name, Walker, who plays- Robert Bruno. Walker, yeah. Robert Walker, who plays Bruno. As I said in DM2, Charlie X's dad. Uh, <laughs> you know, like you need someone who appears at least a little weak and possibly dominated 
by him. Uh, and there are a lot of actors who wouldn't appear weak or dominated by Robert Walker. You have to believe the choice they're going to make, what they're yeah. going to do. Obviously, Granger, in a sense, I do think there's a sense of memory people have in past roles. Granger had played a more submissive yeah. person in Rope to you know, someone like Walker. Uh, yeah. if, and so, okay, maybe we're going in this direction. We'll buy it. And obviously, the, the, the book, he makes that sort of choice. But yeah, I think ultimately, Hitchcock was very good about finding that clear choice, building not, so the suspense is about the choices. Um, Rewatching North by Northwest recently, which is an epic, which is great. Yeah, a masterpiece. There's no dumb choices. Cary Grant doesn't make any dumb choices. Like, well, why don't you just go to the, please, or why don't you do this? It's like, there's no idiot plotting and he just doesn't do idiot plotting. I think any of his films, I really respect that. Like, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. No, even if, you know, even if Grant makes mistakes, it's, you know, almost always because he doesn't have the complete picture and he's stumbling around in the dark and he's trying to figure out what the right move is. Now that movie's a, a template for, for any entertainment of that kind, for any spy movie. Um, you know, it's, people have said it's, you know, it's the crypto first James Bond movie. It's sort of the, you know, Absolutely. But I'm, I've always admired his ability in that because once someone is on the, so once you've thrown him out of his element, it's an entirely different given circumstance. So who is this person? So he very quickly establishes who Grant's character, who Thornhill is, just in his relation to his secretary in that very brief scene. So then we can contrast that against everything else. It's just, a, yeah, his, his structures are always, as a writer, that's been like, it's been sort of the inspiration to me. I know my next project, I was talking to an actor I've worked with recently and she's a big Hitchcock fan. We're trying to think of a sort of Hitchcock style sort of thriller to do um, in a space. And I always tell people, it's like, oh, so it's going to be, no, no, not a parody, not a, not a parody of the form or like riffing on it. Cause I respect the form. I just, I really love building of suspense, of character, having an audience truly engaged, especially now we're in the middle of this pandemic, we can bring audiences back, mm -hmm. just having a space where everyone's together, like what's happening, what's going to happen and to be invested. Mm -hmm. Not as you were saying about slasher films where people are kind of like, oh yeah, okay, here's a dumb, she gets killed, ha ha ha, here's a joke yeah. and like, not care it to be really like on your sense of like, no, oh, no, don't do that. Oh no, don't make that phone call. Cause that person's doing this. Like to really be invested is wonderful. It's what we've missed. And I think that's what we're seeing about when people are coming back to theaters. I do think that's one of the reasons they're coming. I mean, when you can choose to stay at home and stream is because nice. this isn't a collective experience where we're all holding our breath together or laughing together no matter how good the work could be, if it's just something I can watch at home safely, yeah. why it, would it, I? It definitely, it definitely, I went to see uh, Nightmare Theater in a largely empty, or Nightmare Alley in a largely empty movie theater last night. And I was glad I saw it because I, I turned on my mouth and said, honestly, the kind of thing this is, it, I might've checked out of it on television. I might've looked at my phone. Movie, there are certain movies and really the best movies um, create a kind of trance, the best art, the best theater, the best books, create a kind of trance that 
you accept what you're being told, you're invested in the people mm-hmm. and you and you have to see how it turns out. Um, we were flipping channels yesterday and I think, it, you know, we put on movies sometimes when we're just, when we're both puttering and doing stuff and we put on Light in the Piazza, a potboiler from the 60s, a melodrama. And uh, I think we came in about 15 minutes and we ended up watching the whole damn thing because we like, we came, we got invested in the story and my wife was like, stupid melodramas. Now I can't stop watching this thing until I find out if George Hamilton ends up with Yvette Mimieux. Like <laughs> the least important, least pressing matter in the entire world if George Hamilton and Yvette Mimieux end up together in the 1960s. But for the next hour, we're going to find out the answer to that question. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, Will Rossano brought to the yeah. with Olivia de Havilland. That's really the important thing. Care about the characters and then you can kind of then care about the story um you know everyone's talking about don't look up and those stories I, um and I think that is one of the sometimes satire where you don't necessarily everyone's absurd and, and crazy I mean I like strange love certainly I think a lot of people do but I, I do think right now sometimes earnestness um coming off what I call the twilight zone holiday January yeah. 1st where I do I right. feel like what everyone sometimes misses when doing you know versions of twilight zone um is sterling's earnestness and definitely mm-hmm. someone who's not of a, a nihilist not a, like a really oh, solid, not at all you know mm-hmm. and that is also something i've always inspired me the idea of how he's able to tell these grand stories in this sort of mm-hmm. genre setting but through earnestness and through of like and he and he's not as you say he he absolutely believes in people and he believes in redemption and and he believes in the human spirit and he also believes in all the things that crush that mm-hmm. and uh and that's what he may get back to strange love there's one earnest character in strange love and he's the hero of the film and even though it's a comic part played comically we never look down on group captain lionel mandrake for his mm-hmm. perception of what's going on for what he's trying to accomplish and the movie revol- the movie wouldn't work without one sane man going, you know, you're seriously talking to me about the, the Coca-Cola company when I need a quarter to call the president to end World War III? Like, you know, you know what's going to happen to you, your entire fray-mouth way of looking at things? Uh, <laughs> it's an amazing part, and it's, and it's got great humanity. Uh, and it, the whole movie is so, it's ultimately too tragic without it. You know, and, and and admittedly, it ends the way it ends, um, but it's uh, you know you you can't. It's like speaking going back to Woody Allen when he started making serious films and he makes interior, which doesn't interiors, which doesn't even have a smile in it. Mm-hmm. Even Ingmar Bergman knew there is no such human experience where there's not even one smile. There is, yeah. that's not, that's just as bullshit now, as anything else. Well, I mean, as I've often said, uh, now I would say Scorsese is a, affirmatively a funnier filmmaker than Woody Allen, perhaps because he oh. understands that. So aside from After Hours, good fe- like of my generation, good people who quote Goodfellas and took up jokes on it, and, and there's legitimately humor in that that is far different from any, I mean, we don't connect 
because a friend of mine like to say a joke sometimes it's not a reference which is a lot of alan's challenges which is like okay well that's a clever dennis miller style reference to something right. you read but like here like oh this is true character driven comedy yeah. even though it's about murderers and gangsters and like that's make that's what makes them relatable in humor you know i mean and, even coppola did that even the godfather had humor in it beyond, oh like, yeah no, there's a lot of funny stuff in the godfather because again it's like they're human beings everyone in that story is a human being um and human beings are funny and they're sad and they're you know they're more than just the one thing and just you know thinking that making a movie in which nobody smiles makes you ingmar bergman is the one of the most the complete tangent but one of the most fascinating things to me is that i love federico fellini and so does woody allen and he doesn't understand the, he doesn't embody any of the values of federico fellini in any of his films oh, no. and that is that is what the end of eight and a half spoiler alert is our selfish self-centered main character who's been trying to plumb the depths of his own humanity for two and a half hours decides that the only way to survive and go on with his life is to embrace all of the people who make his life difficult and easy who love him and hate like to to embrace life that's the end of eight and a half woody allen remakes it as stardust memories that movie ends with an audience of people who are all the people in the movie just like in fellini walking out of the theater talking about the movie and when they're all gone woody allen walks in alone hmm. looks at the empty screen and walks out and i was like he's not with the people he's unengaged you spend, with you spend all this time and some studio's money remaking eight and a half and you don't know the first fucking thing about it you don't you don't know what it's about you don't know I mean, or you know what it's about, and it's just that ain't me. I'm I'm remaking one of the great humanist films by rejecting humans. <laughs> no, yeah, it, it is it's essentially like, it's what you were kind of saying about Spielberg with the not like oh, and the huge hook noses or whatever. So getting the superficial aspect of how Fellini told his story, but not but not that it's a essentially the human humanity there. Which again, that's, I mean, some of my favorite works, they're humanists, like again, yeah. Serling, even Hitchcock in certain ways, because the hero, you, you want to believe, like that's, people want to believe they can be better than they are in tough yeah. situations. I'm going to do this. I don't necessarily want to watch a movie. Why is that clever of like, right. oh, yeah, my, at my worst day, I would have done this. Right. Thank you, Woody. As opposed to yeah. at my worst day, I would actually... You know, if David Evel, if I suddenly someone gets murdered and I'm framed for it, here's how I would right. rise up as me. I want to believe that. I want to go on that journey and believe that here's how I could outwit James Mason. Who right. doesn't want to do and that? There are a lot of ways to do that. I mean, one of my, I'm, I'm not a giant Matrix fan, but one of my favorite things in the first movie is when uh, Fishburne tells him, no, in order to escape, you got to go out on this ledge and walk along the outside of this building. And he just tries it and goes, no, no, I'm not an, I not a, I'm not a climbing around on the outside of skyscrapers guy. I'm a fucking coder. He works for yeah. a big faceless corporation and you're asking me to do action hero nonsense. And no, I'm not going to do it. I can't yeah. do it. If you've done it, you'd, you and the audience would go, would you? Really? Um, no, no, no. And it, 
it means something later that when he does something unbelievable around the outside of the skyscraper really you do that on the and there are films that would do that right that would sort of immediately throw the accountant into this drastic world so here it's like it takes him a while to get there so it matters when when he does do it it's because my friend Lawrence Fishburne's in trouble I'm going to right believe in myself only because I want to save my friend you show them and you you also you would show the fear of that I did a web series years ago where I had a scene in which uh, the main character, who is not an action hero, gets in the middle of a fight between two secret agents and another guy's a kind of assassin robot. And one of the, the assassin robot knocks the gun out of the, 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 one of the agent's hands. And my hero picks it up, points it at the bad guy and pulls the trigger and nothing happens. And at the end of the scene, the agent takes the gun out of hand and says, here's where the safety is. <laughs> Hock it first before you fire it. Should that come up again? Because one of the things that kills me in movies is, you know, people pick up a discarded machine gun and fire it with amazing accuracy. They know how to use it and don't get they like- don't pull back, They don't pull back the slide. They don't do any of the things you need to do to make a machine gun ready for firing that the average person might not be trained on or know about uh and i thought it would be funny to just do a scene where someone in an action movie picks up a gun and has no idea how to use a gun because they've never used it because it hasn't come up yeah i like to think i would remember to look and see if the safety was on uh if a if a gun ended up at my feet (laughs) you know for one reason or another but i'm in the heat of the moment you might not go oh yeah no this is good uh clips full great you know like all I'm of, ready to be a. I'm ready to be a badass. Yeah, but it's a. It's a. You know, and I, there's a certain degree of suspension of disbelief. That's fine, but I always think. You know, I always say, as a writer, research is everything, and. It's not that you. You know, you're you're writing. You're creating a fake world. verisimilitude is not everything but at a certain point like when the walking dead shows that everyone in the world who survived somehow can make a successful headshot against a zombie while both of them are moving with a handgun from 20 feet away i'm like cops can't do that now (laughs) like (laughs) like you know just can't can't you choreograph one of these scenes so that somebody misses once, <laughs> you know? But in every action scene in Walking Dead, at least until I stop watching it, every single time anyone, be they a five-year-old to a seven-year-old woman, is being attacked by a zombie, they have a handgun, they turn right here. Kill shot's very hard. Kill shot right between the eyes on someone moving <laughs> while they themselves are also moving. Not standing still in a gun range, but just like, and I'm like, just you would make you a lot of miss every tenth round. Just well, there's the trope of yeah. uh, truth in television is for the TV tropes has that of like because yeah. people make fun of stormtroopers for bad aim, and it's like, well, all you know, some of that's really bad, but at the same time, it is hard to hit moving targets. Like it is possible that people running while you're shooting, you are going to get the thing of where the bullets. And you yeah. don't actually get someone at, at, well in time from the dart around the corner. It is yeah. possible, certainly less so than people just like 
No, and I've, I've certainly seen, uh, I think, you know, again, it's a fine line. I was flipping channels and I think Casino Royale was on and there was some scene where Bond was running and someone was firing a machine gun at him. But he was running through an area with a bunch of stone columns. And I was like, conceivably, he's moving fast enough and the guy isn't leading him right and all of his bullets are ending up in the stone columns and blah, 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 blah. But give me something, you yes. know, instead of just like flat plane. I mean, on, in Star Wars, for example, I can't think of a lot of situations in those movies where the stormtroopers just have absolutely dead ass clear shots that they could make and kill everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not, as you said, it's usually running down carters with turns in them and things are happening and doors are closing and all that. Uh, but you had, but like I said, just give me, give me just enough to hang on to so that I can believe in the reality of what I'm seeing. And if it's just over and over again, oh, they just all missed for some reason. It doesn't matter that there's no tensions. So everything's about how yeah. do I, how do I escalate stakes? How do I make in every scene that you believe the person's life is at risk or at threat you know and, yeah. and Hitchcock was a master of that of like oh my goodness is it is he going to be revealed is yeah, people have to believe there is no way out of this they're like wow how would that you know it's everyone talks about what a terrible movie it is but one of the great moments in any James Bond movie is him being thrown out of the plane in Moonraker because you literally go how the fuck did what how is he's got just got thrown out of a plane that's it and the skydiving technique makes his saving himself believable mm -hmm. you know the speeding up and dropping and jumping on the guy with parachute like the fact that that scene isn't laughably ridiculous i mean it is at the end with the falling on the circus tent but that's one of my favorite scenes in any bond movie because you're just like you have created a situation where the audience can't easily think oh i know how he's going to do this he got the gadget from q he oh sure i know how he's going to do this you just seeing that in a movie theater in 79 8 and 80 i was just like okay you got me i have no idea how james bond gets out of being thrown out of an airplane without a parachute there's no deus ex machina here there's no and to, to, that's kind of i would say it's one of the holy grails of writing action to write an action sequence that no one's ever seen before that is believable and that you can't predict the outcome of it and you don't and you don't beat it by deus ex machina and you don't beat it by like oh well q in the first scene gave him a thing that's weirdly coincidentally the exact thing he needs in this one situation um you know and that's uh i think we're anyone who writes that kind of material you're always looking for the like what's the thing I've never seen before um, that's scary and interesting. And yet in some ways also like, who isn't afraid of falling from great heights? That's a, that's a very, that's not an exotic fear. <laughs> you know, we can all identify with, okay, that would, I would, I would lose my shit. And the difference between me and James Bond is James Bond is the guy who goes, well, if I hold my arms against my sides, I can drop faster and I have a shot at getting that guy's parachute off him instead of the rest of us who would just be going, <laughs> I'm going to die, you know? So that's the, and that's another, you know, just not to get into the writing 101 of it all, but I think a lot of people don't think about 
when they're writing genre, uh, what makes someone a hero is, is choices, is making the difficult choice. Uh, my favorite moment in Raiders of the Lost Ark is him swimming to the submarine because it's nuts, because it's suicidally, but it is the only, he has no other option. Like his other option is to stay on the ship and they get to port and he radios for a destroyer. Like, I don't know how he solves that problem. But in the moment he goes, well, I guess I'm, I guess I'm swimming to the fucking Nazi submarine and we'll take it, we'll figure out from there what the next move is. That's the most heroic thing he does in the movie. Of all of the other things, and he does a lot of heroic things in the movie, but that's the most batshit. I am going to swim to a U-boat and, and hope for the and hope that a plan fucking presents itself that allows me to beat this thing and save Marion and get the ark. And uh, and yeah, so that's the we've we've hit a thousand different topics, and I'm always happy when that happens. I should let you know. <laughs> oh, good. I should oh yeah, that's whenever I've done podcasts, this one and the writer's block, I'm always like, the point is to have an interesting conversation and it does not, on topic is an extremely overrated. Uh, Absolutely. An overrated thing. So thank you so much for coming on, Stephen. Where can people find you on the interwebs? <laughs> um, I am on Twitter, uh, SCR1897. And uh, I am, uh, you can find my work at wanket.com and the AV Club. And if you're in Seattle, come see something at Cafe Nordo. Even if I haven't written it, they do great work. So, what is, is Cafe Nordo an under 100? Is it uh, equity? What's the what kind of? Uh, if you say they're under 100, uh, we um, when we did, we actually did two shows simultaneously, which sounds crazy. When we opened to keep the space, it's an immersive theater, so they actually served great food during the show, um, and uh, which combines the two things I love, which is great a great meal and and theater um but yeah like uh there was like a usually capacity around 50 people this time it was like 25 and upstairs and downstairs so coming sure. up about the same but trying to use different spaces to uh be cautious and it certainly worked there was uh, no issues during our run and everything but um yes it's in seattle's pioneer square and um yeah we do a lot of fun work there so Hopefully in a new year, once we get, let's hope through Omicron, maybe we hunker down in January and things will improve. So, but thank you so much. David. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for coming on, Stephen. I'm really glad we got a chance to talk. Hey, great. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>